If counsel prepared, I think we're going to hear from Mr. Willenchuk first. Is that correct? All right. Thank you, Your Honors, and may it please the Court. Um, this case presents some very interesting novel issues regarding the law on pardons um, and what the effect of a pardon is on a live criminal proceeding. Uh, one of the last things that I said to the district court below is that this really is, despite those exciting legal issues, sort of a, a matter of judicial housekeeping. Well, this isn't a traditional Munsingware case, because in the normal Munsingware context, you would have an adverse judgment, and then when the mootness arises, you would be seeking to vacate it. But you have a judgment of dismissal with prejudice in your favor. What, what more do you want than that, and, and how does Munsingware get you anything more? Sure. Uh, I think this... This issue was addressed head-on in the Bancorp case, which is another case in the Munsingware line of cases that was written by Judge Scalia, Justice Scalia. Um, there's a discussion in there about the fact that even though you have a dismissal with prejudice, that doesn't terminate the case. The court still has jurisdiction to look at the effect of mootness uh, on the remainder of the case. Otherwise, there'd be no way to reach this issue that we are asking the court for relief on, namely to vacate the conviction. So it's really not fundamentally distinguishable either from Munsingware or Bancor or any, any of those cases. But if you have a dismissal with prejudice and then just assume hypothetically that it is clear or were clear that it would have no collateral effect or a preclusive effect in other matters, does Munsingware have any applicability to you or, or do you have at that point everything that, to which you could be entitled? I think it's the last part of, of what the court just said that that's the issue. If it were a dismissal with prejudice that were clear that it has no preclusive effect, that is basically what we are seeking in the form of a vacatur. It's that last part, clarity that the conviction has no preclusive effect. Uh, that, to my mind, is, is what the point of these cases like Munsingware and Bancor is, is that is to, to establish as a matter of law that the conviction does not spawn any future legal consequences, i.e., it has no preclusive effect. So if the dismissal in this case were to have stated no orders in this case have any further preclusive effect, again, that, that is what we are seeking by vacatur. What, what, other, what other collateral effects are you worried about? The, the issue here is that any conviction, and this is something that this Court has recognized in a number of decisions, um, even to the point of creating presumption that there's a collateral there's, that there's a collateral legal effect to a conviction. Um, it can have professional consequences. Um, as a matter of law, it can have consequences on sentencing in future cases. To, me, to my mind, the fundamental problem here is that the defendant was pardoned, and there will be no, he will never serve a sentence, there will be no direct practical consequences to the conviction. Um, there is a spare minimum of legal consequences, of collateral consequences, that makes this case even worth talking about. But it is moot. We've taken the position that it's moot, just as the court found in Schaefer, as the Fourth Circuit found in Schaefer. But if it had collateral consequences, how would it be moot? This is exactly the, the, the problem that we contended with, and this is the reason why we, we briefed an alternative, that if this case were not moot, there is a number of issues that we would have liked to raise on direct appeal. It's, it's frankly an issue I've struggled with myself. Reconcile, sure. you've asserted that you agree it's moot, but you think that there are collateral consequences unless we order a vacature. Those seem to be logically inconsistent premises. They are, and that's what I've struggled with, and that's the reason why, again, we, we have briefed it both ways. I think the only way to reconcile this issue is that in cases like Cibron or here in Ninth Circuit, um, I'm going to butcher the name, but it's something like Hirabayashi. There's these cases saying, okay, well, where you have collateral consequences, the case is not moot, and you should hear a direct appeal as you normally would. Those are all cases where clearly the, the defendant was not pardoned, and that was not the reason for mootness. They're all cases where the reason for mootness was that the sentence was served. I think the line to be drawn here is in cases where the sentence was served, 
And then again, you have the court, whether it's this court or the Supreme Court, saying there's still legal consequences to the conviction that do not make this case moot. I think the line to be drawn is that those are cases where they're moot because the sentence was served. There's a, you know, the, the whole principle of mootness is a prudential principle. It's something that does, there's no fast and hard lines about. It's just an issue of, well, is this case worth hearing? In those cases where the sentence was served, the case is still worth hearing because aside from the collateral legal consequences of any conviction, you have the fact that somebody just served an actual sentence, and if it was a wrongful sentence, that's something the court should take a look at. I think the line to be drawn is that in this case, while there's no sentence that's been served, there's no sentence that will ever be served, I do think there's a bare minimum of legal consequences there to make this case worth talking about or make vacatur worth talking about, but I don't think it rises to the level that the case is not moot for the simple reason that, again, there is no sentence that was served here and no sentence ever will be. So the court raises a very good issue. Again, as I say, I have struggled with this myself, which is the reason why we briefed it both ways. But I think that's the line that's to be drawn. Again, this is a case where there are legal consequences. It's worth talking about vacatur as a result of those. But it's not worth going for the, through the full exercise of a direct appeal because, again, there was no sentence that was served here. There never will be. Prudentially, it's basically a waste of time. It's a, very tough, it's a very tough line to be drawn there because, again, exactly the reason the court said it seems somewhat inconsistent to, on the one hand, look at cases in which a sentence was served and that would be, as a practical matter, moot, um, but in this case, where the sentence is not served, but there's still those collateral legal consequences to say, well, we're not going to do that. We're not going to take it as if it were direct appeal. We're going to consider it moot. Um, that is, of course, what the Fourth Circuit did in the Schaefer case. In spite of case law like Sibirin at the United States Supreme Court saying, well, we've, where you've got any collateral consequences to legal conviction, the case is not moot, uh, the Schaefer case said, well, you know, this case very much is moot. And again, I think that's just a prudential... But in Schaefer, the D.C. The DC Circuit was dealing with a very, very complicated case in which it, it itself had, had vacated the, the, the prior convictions, said they couldn't stand and it was going to go back for retrial. So there was no conviction at the time that Schaefer decides, that decides to vacate everything. That seems to me to be quite distinguishable from your case. I do want to make it clear, at the time, Schaefer is a very complicated case. But at the time that it was of the pardon, it was going to be reheard on bank by that circuit court. At that time, the conviction had not been vacated. In fact, Mr. Schaefer had been sentenced. So in that sense, it's not meaningfully distinguishable. In fact, it's a worst case, so to speak, there, where Schaefer had been sentenced. In fact, the last thing that he ever filed was a motion to stay his sentence pending the en banc rehearing. Um, so I don't see that as distinguishable at all. In fact, there he's... Isn't it distinguishable because the judgment was a conviction and you have a judgment in your favor? We don't normally apply Munsingware to vacate judgments in your favor. It's normally the party who suffered the adverse judgment wants to get rid of it and wipe the slate clean. You're not asking us to wipe the slate clean. You don't want to get rid of your judgment of dismissal with prejudice. That's why I, I'm, I'm having trouble. It doesn't look like Schaefer because the judgment is the other way. Well, the adverse, the adverse judgment here is the conviction. And I'm sure in Schaefer there was also a order entered dismissing the case. So there's a, the conviction was entered in as a judgment against the, the judgment in the case is that it is dismissed, the claims are dismissed with prejudice. That's the, the final order um, that was entered here. It is ordered that this action for criminal contempt is dismissed with prejudice. Correct. Is there any Munsingware case that applies in this context where the judgment is in fact in your favor and says that you can get more than a judgment in your favor out of Munsingware? The honest answer is I think they are all of this ilk because the adverse decision is that conviction. And in all these cases, in all the Munsingware cases, the case is dismissed. Is that judgment, adverse finding of guilt, that conviction, is it embodied in a judgment? Um, it is not because the case never reached that finality, no. Not because it's the judgment is that the matter was dismissed with prejudice. So that conviction was never embodied in a final judgment. Indeed, the final judgment is in your favor. Except to, the, except to the extent that we still have that conviction, we still have that legal ruling, which would spawn legal consequences of a conviction. 
So again, to the court's point earlier, if that judgment had said, this case is hereby dismissed and all orders are vacated, that would resolve this issue, and that's exactly what we've been seeking since, since day one. That's why I say this really is a matter of judicial housekeeping. The problem, go ahead. Go ahead. Did you want to follow up on that? I was just going to follow up quickly. So, so what precisely is it that you want stricken from the records? Not, not even stricken. Just an order saying that the conviction is vacated. So it has no further legal preclusive effect. You've already issued a, she's already issued a motion to dismiss. What, what more does she have to, to do? What, what, what else is it you want her to do? Are there, are there, are there other orders that, Correct. That, that need to be dismissed? Those, those would be what? The findings of fact that she entered previously? Absolutely, the finding of, of guilty, the conviction. I'm going to change. If we're looking at a motion for vacature, what is my standard or review on that particular motion? Uh, we do agree with the other parties. It would be an abuse of discretion. However, so go ahead. if it's an abuse of discretion, then what part of the court's order was an abuse? It seems to me that you're arguing that it was an abuse because by simply having had this dismissal, that it automatically allows you to get where you want on vacatur. Now, if I don't agree with that, supposing that I don't think there's any automatic about this at all, what law was malapplied by the district court in trying to decide what to do on vacatur? The answer is there... Because, frankly, I'm not sure you're right on the fact that it's automatic. And so I'm trying to figure out what law did she malapply? Well, the answer is legally our position is that it is automatic. Well, because I know that's your position, but supposing I don't agree. Supposing that I think that by filing your motion for vacature, you accepted the pardon, and therefore it's not automatic. And therefore, at that point, she still has vacature in front of her. What is the law she should have applied and didn't? Uh, the answer is, per the Munningswear line of cases... Pardon me? Per the line of cases that the court referred to earlier, Munningswear, you have... It is an automatic rule. If the, if the court doesn't find that to be the law, I, I, I do think the United States Supreme Court has, has made that the law. What is the law she should have applied? Because sure. I didn't find that in your brief. Under the Munningswear line of cases, that... Where a case becomes moot, either prior to or on appeal, it's, not, it's fundamentally unfair to say, hey, you were forever convicted, but you cannot appeal that. You don't have the right to a direct appeal. That's not the law that is fundamentally unfair. What is the law? I'm, I mean, that's the basis I mean, for that line of cases. The law? I mean, I'm trying to get from you what it is she did wrong. Because after I get to what it is she did wrong, then I have to give her every deference on the facts. And we're in an abuse of discretion situation here. And, and frankly, I'm finding I'm having a tough time understanding what you think she did wrong, except she didn't suggest you accepted the pardon when I say we filed the motion, you did accept. So I'm trying to figure out what it is you're really saying she didn't do wrong. The court failed to apply United States versus Munsingware Incorporated, 340 U.S. 36, 1950. I, I understand, Munsingware. You can quote that all you want. Give me the standard of review she had to use. Give me the law she had to use in trying to do that, besides just quoting me a case. I've, I've tried to do that, Your Honor. The answer is that when a case becomes moot, either prior to or on appeal, that the court must dismiss the case and vacate all prior orders. Counsel, that seems a, a grossly inadequate statement of the law of, of mootness and vacature. Uh, Bonner there Mall, is an exception, Bonner, sure. Bonner Mall qualifies that. Correct. And there are, uh, so there are additional factors that a court is supposed to take into Absolutely. account. Absolutely. And in answer to Judge Smith's repeated questions, I haven't heard you once qualify it. You simply have said, when a case becomes moot, it needs to be vacated. I was right about That's to qualify it. <laughs> Thank you, Judge Smith right. was trying to tease this out of you. He gave sure. you every opportunity. I was right about to, to, to point that out, absolutely. The qualification is that where by voluntary act of the party, uh, a voluntary act of the party seeking vacatur has caused mootness. It's not fair to So to why isn't the acceptance of the pardon the voluntary act necessary because, that takes it into Bonner Mall and out of Munsingwell? Because pardons are not accepted as a matter of law. Under the... Pardons uh, are what? 
they are not accepted as a matter of law you don't have to be accepted they are not accepted what did mr r pio accept his pardon it's relevant as a matter of law under the bill case relevant absolutely the bill case says wilson say then the arpaio has to accept the pardon biddle overruled wilson biddle is a much more it's the most recent case we've had to discuss here biddle doesn't change the general rule all biddle says we're the opinion that the reasoning of verdict is not extended to the present case where a prisoner has a death penalty imposed biddle didn't even involve a pardon how could it overrule it did involve a pardon it did involve a partner well clemency pardons operationally are the same in this respect the court specifically said that it will be imposed in the teeth in the in against the will of the defendant it was a case where the defendant actually argued for tactical purposes he didn't want a commutation will your client you filed the motion and the motion was we got a pardon as a result of this pardon if you want me to read the language you now should vacate that's an acceptance again biddle is very clear it doesn't matter whether whether the defendant accepts or rejects is not the issue it is imposed in the teeth of his will so your argument is that pardons cannot be rejected after correct and your argument then rises or falls on whether we think biddle overruled burdick and wilson i think that's fair i think biddle stands for the proposition that pardons do not need to be accepted or rejected pardon within the meaning of wilson say again you pleaded the pardon within the meaning of wilson because wilson rested on the fact that the pardon had not been invoked and presented the court you presented it to the court and asked for relief based on the pardon so within the meaning of wilson you pleaded it and accepted it i think that's a fair statement but i don't think that 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 language in wilson has any meaning anymore whether or not the defendant pleads it whether or not the defendant accepts it again i think biddle is very clear that it's done by executive fiat and that once it happens it happens regardless of whether the defendant likes it or not when we filed a motion to dismiss that is bring it to the attention of the court um frankly i did that just as a practical matter to make sure it was on on file and in motion to dismiss we did ask for this vacatur again it was a way of saying to the court we think this is the legal effect of a pardon and that's what we're still here about today so if in fact i don't believe your argument as you've made it has ability to fly is there any other argument you can make about vacatur i think as a matter of equity which is what vacatur arises out of matter of equity it's not fair to say that he's forever convicted but can't appeal that and that's the basic problem here but the problem i have with that argument is if it's a matter of equity why didn't one argue equities into the court that is what we're arguing vacatur is an equitable relief argued a straight legal deal that if you get a pardon you automatically get the vacatur that was your argument i read your brief that is the legal argument correct but what other argument did you make i just said it i didn't see any if you did again it's an equitable argument which we have we have stated many many times which is that it's not fair i don't want to repeat it again but it's not fair to say you're forever convicted but cannot appeal that and that would be the effect of leaving the court's ruling as it is simply dismissing the case with prejudice but without vacating that order it leaves it there final with preclusive effect and that's the basic problem here i would like to reserve my remaining time for rebuttal do so thank you mr bilicek mr pierce may it please the court james pierce for the united states the presidential pardon mooted the verdict finding defendant joseph arpaio guilty of criminal contempt though not automatic vacatur following mootness is the preferred disposition and is appropriate here for three reasons first the pardon precluded meaningful appellate review second the pardon in this circumstance amounts to happenstance or a vagary of circumstance a recognized reason for vacatur under the munsingware cases and third the the pardon was a result of a unilateral action by the party that prevailed below is there any case that you're aware of that applies munsingware in a situation where the the party who's worried about preclusive effect has a judgment in its favor 
well i think that actually conflates two issues judge collins the question is what moots the case here it's the pardon i think you can also say the dismissal with prejudice essentially establishes the pardon on the record and then the separate question is is vague a tour appropriate now you agree that if there's any live collateral consequence then the case is not moot yes we do and we believe there are no live collateral consequences no live collateral consequences and he has a judgment in his favor what work does the months and where doctrine have to do with that point well the months and where doctrine answers the question or helps establish whether or not vacant tour is appropriate i think it's odd in this case and i think questions to our pio are fair why are you seeking this additional relief because a pardon and vacant tour perform essentially the same function they nullify the the results the legal consequences of a conviction but if there are no legal consequences of the can of the findings of guilt because if there were legal consequences the appeal wouldn't be moot so if there are none and he has a judgment in his favor the whole purpose of months and where which is to avoid preclusive effect from a party who didn't get an appeal just doesn't apply there's no basis for applying months and where is there no i don't think that's right i mean i think months and where is still concerned with whether or not the the case should be vacated or just left on the books as it is uh, and you, you run through the various factors, uh, meaningful appellate review, whether the party that caused the mootness did it, did it through, through voluntary action, and, and these factors. And to answer Judge Smith's question... But, no, but, I, I want to... Maybe you better answer his first. I f- f- fair enough. In Bancorp, it says, we explain that vacature, quote, clears the path for future relitigation of the issues between the parties and eliminates a judgment review of which was prevented through happenstance. You know, it's to wipe the slate clean, but that's not what happened here, not what anyone thinks should happen here, that the slate should be wiped clean. He has a judgment in his favor. If there's no preclusive effect from these interlocutory orders, what's the work for the Munsingware doctrine? Well, to be clear here, or so, so I'm clear, the dismissal with prejudice is not before this court. That was entered on October 4th of, of 2018. That's not the order that is on appeal at this court. The order that's on appeal is the subsequent order that issued just over two weeks later the question of whether to vacate or not. And that is the, the, the question that this court faces. Interlocutory orders, not to vacate the judgment. N- n- well, there is no judgment, but to vacate the criminal adjudication of guilt. It, the- it is ordered that this action for criminal contempt is dismissed with prejudice. That's not a judgment? Uh, it's, it's, it's an order that I think uh, ends the prosecution, moots the prosecution, but it does not go back and say, and the, uh, the criminal finding of guilt is vacated. But the judgment uh, was entered based on that order. Uh, there, uh, there was no, there was no subsequent uh, judgment entered at all. There is the order that dismisses the case with prejudice, moots the so case. She makes that order in her decision. Are you saying because it didn't have another judgment, another paper judgment entered, that it isn't the same? No, I, I think it. I think it has, is the functional equivalent of a judgment. That that's correct. I guess I, that's why I was interested. In what you were going to answer to my colleague's question. I don't know what the collateral consequence is here, so therefore I'm having a tough time understanding why we have anything more in front of us. Well, you don't as a matter of the, the mootness question. You don't as a matter of any of the alternative arguments that, that Mr. Arpaio raises and that the special prosecutor also addresses. The question simply is a traditional Munsingware analysis, and to answer the question of how did... Is it His question is very simple. Why is it Munsingware if you already have everything you wanted out of a Munsingware done by dismissal with prejudice? Because dismissal with prejudice doesn't vacate. It is, it is not the vacatur of the criminal adjudication of guilt. It is not vacatur of the guilty verdict. Uh, I think simply, it's a, and this is what, I mean, this is a question ultimately for Mr. Arpaio, and I understand his answer to be vacatur of the uh, guilty verdict, arguably also vacatur of the charging instrument, which is what this court does under the abatement doctrine, for example. Now, I, I want to address the question about how did the district court abuse its discretion. I'd love to find out, because nobody suggests the district court abused its discretion, including you. 
we, we did. Uh, it, Where? Uh, oh, in, in our brief before this court, you're talking about. Look, did you ever, did you ever say to the court, Madam, you have a discretionary decision to make here, and these are the factors you ought to consider? Uh, I'm not sure below whether the government, in, in precisely those terms. I'm, I'm sure. I didn't see a thing in there. I read the record. And I think that it was, it was on, rested on Schaefer. So then, if it's an abuse of discretion in front of me, what are the legal standards she should have used that she did not use? Okay. So there are three. First of all, and I, I anticipate that the, the court will, will push back on this, but by not applying the Munsingware and, and Bancorp, and in particular, absence of meaningful appellate review, the fact that this was happenstance, and the fact that this was unilateral action by the prevailing party. Well, I agree that that was not presented by the that's government. That's not in any of the cases. Do you want me to read what the standards are in the cases? Uh, that comes straight from... Um, uh, Dilly. I'm going to read you what Dilly says. Dilly says she's supposed to review the consequences and attendant hardships of dismissal as well as refusal to dismiss. She's supposed to review the competing values of finality of the judgment and the right for relitigation of the unreviewed disputes. She's supposed to review that the appellant did not intend to avoid appellate review and to have the district court's order vacated. If I go to other cases, we can look at the motives of the party whose voluntary action mooted the case. None of those were explained to her, and I wonder why it is then I should have to, I should even say there is an abuse. The issue was not presented to her. She, it's not in front of me. Nobody's really said that in front of me. Why don't I just forget it then and go on? Well, again, respectfully. I mean, respectfully, it's waived in my view. Well, by, by presenting it to, to this court... Uh, Did you present this to me? We argued under, under Munsingware and Bancorp, which, as Supreme Court cases establish, and there are plenty of cases in this court that also uh, repeat the various principles that I've, I've just mentioned, that's our first reason for why the district court abused its discretion. The second is uh, its treatment... Saying that, saying that, all you're saying is, once a pardon, they should have done it. That's the only argument you made under below and the argument that the Arpaio made below. That's, that's not true, Judge Smith. The, the other arguments are relying on Schaefer and what the court said about Schaefer, the district court said, well, in Schaefer, uh, there was already appellate uh, proceedings happening, whereas uh, Arpaio hadn't followed a notice, filed a notice of appeal. And uh, additionally, that the question of legal guilt was resolved in Arpaio where it hadn't been in Schaefer. Both of those are, are in, incorrect or rather uh, not uh, legally significant. Uh, this court in Oberland, in Tapia Marquez, in Payton has all said it is the availability of appellate review, not the fact that someone has noticed an appeal. Counsel, before you're, before you're done, uh, do you agree with, uh, with Mr. Arpaio that Biddle overruled Wilson and Burdick? No. Absolutely not. I think that there are two different ways to see verdict, or there's a verdict. Doesn't that change your analysis on the happenstance? Doesn't that mean that Arpaio has accepted the pardon? Yes, it does. And, and in, in which case, it's not pure happenstance. It did require an affirmative act or some kind of acquiescence, at least, uh, on Arpaio's um, on Arpaio's part. I think those are two separate questions, Your Honor. I think the one question is, is a pardon the kind of thing that, you, that is an expected part of litigation? So take the Peyton example. In Peyton, the government loses an appeal on a suppression question, and then it dismisses the case, uh, and then the court says, well, that's not happenstance. That kind of thing happens all the time. A, a, a dismissal following, which moots the case, a dismissal following a loss, that's a regular part of litigation. A pardon showing up in the middle of litigation, that's happenstance. Uh, now, it's even more so happenstance under the factual record here because Arpaio didn't actually uh, apply for, and the record is silent on whether he lobbied for it. So the question of happenstance is, uh, is, is separate from acceptance. I see my time is up. I would like to answer the Burdick Biddle question, but I'm more than happy to sit down. I actually have one further question. Does the government adhere to its position that the special prosecutor was improperly appointed in this case? Yeah, yes, we, we do, Your Honor. The same position we've taken before this court and, uh, and the Supreme Court. Um, 
would, would the court like the answer on Burdick versus Biddle, or, or should I sit down at this point? I think, I think we understand the argument. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Pierce. Mr. Caldwell? May it please the court. Chris, Christopher Caldwell appearing in my role as special counsel appointed by this court. The central dispositive issue for this court is whether the district court abused its discretion in denying Mr. Arpaio's motion seeking the extraordinary remedy of vacator for all orders in his criminal case, including the contempt order itself. The correct order, the correct answer to this is that the district court did not abuse its discretion. As this court did the district court, if it did not abuse its discretion, discuss the legal, if you will, values that it needed to discuss, which were the consequences and attendant hardships of dismissal or refusal to dismiss, the competing values of finality of judgment and the right to Greek litigation of unreviewed disputes, the motives of the party whose voluntary action mooted the case. Where did she discuss that? Your Honor, the answer to that is while the bulk of the order addressed the legal issue, which is how it was presented by the parties, the district court did discuss those issues. Where? Footnote 2 and footnote 3 of the order. Footnote 2? I mean, I happen to have that decision in front of me. So what part of that does footnote 2 address? Your Honor, let me start with footnote 3 because I think that's actually the one that's more directly on point with the question asked by Your Honor. Footnote 3 begins with, at oral argument, defendant raised the possible preclusive effect of the court's rulings as an additional reason to vacate all orders in this case. The court went on to say that this was both a speculative concern, but the law actually counsels against further nullification on this basis. It seems to me that what she's doing there is she is suggesting her idea, which goes throughout the opinion and suggests that, guess what? This takes away no question that he has no sentence, but there is nothing that suggests that we ought to get rid of this conviction. That is the way this whole, if you will, order reads. That was her legal conclusion, which was exactly that's the way it was going to happen. If I were going to weigh the equities, I would want to look at that, and I would say, well, now just look at this equity. Let's look at the consequence. Look at the refusal. Let's look at the finality. Let's look at the relitigation. I mean, I do not know how it is that that does any more than says she was of the idea that this particular pardon only did one thing, and that was get rid of any sentence as it relates to this, and you've got it done, and that's all you're getting. Your Honor, I think, and now I come back to footnote two, because I think that. Okay. I looked at footnote two. What the district court said there. It was about a writ of mandamus to require a jury trial. I'm sorry, Your Honor. I mean footnote one. My apologies. My apologies, Your Honor. And in footnote one, what the court is talking, what the court addressed is whether it is, whether the guilt, the finding of guilt, the order of, you know, establishing guilt should remain, and cited Burdick for that proposition. A pardon carries an imputation. If you look at what I suggest, which I think are a bold opinion that leads to that result, the United States Supreme Court originally signaled in Dickna that presidential pardoning may have an esponging effect, and then she goes on to say why it doesn't. So she's saying this rule I have in my mind is that a pardon does one thing. It gets rid of any sentence. But there's nothing further. It doesn't really look at the, now I have a motion for vacature. It's equitable. And frankly, I think it's equitable even if it's, even if it's automatic. I think there's equity involved in it. And with equity, we're supposed to be determining all of these different factors and weighing them out. 
And therefore, at that point, I'm saying to myself, how do I get to the fact she even knew what she was supposed to do, plus waited? Your Honor, let me answer that specific question. The fact that she knew what she was supposed to do was specifically presented to her in the amicus briefs, while it wasn't addressed by either of the parties. In the amicus brief that was submitted by the Melendres plaintiffs, which the, the district court said at the hearing it had considered and reviewed, it set forth the bank, it identified the, bank, the U.S. Bank Corp., uh, also known as the, the Bonner Mall test. The cases call it both. And it, and, it, and it talked about those factors and how they should apply in this case. I would also note that in, at the argument on the, on the motion for vacator, Mr. Keller, who was the Department of Justice attorney who was arguing the case, said, obviously there are a variety of options well within the court's discretion. That's in... Uh, Tab 17, Volume 2 of the Supplemental Excerpts of Record at page 530. Um, I would also note that the language used by the district... I I don't want to stop you because I want to understand what you're referencing every time, even if you have to give me another note about it hereafter. But what I'm trying to do, I look to see if there was a hearing whereby she talked about what she was doing. There isn't. So the only thing I've got is this little, this record, four pages long, which says what she thought about, what she did, and why. And I'm trying to figure out, with that, how in the devil I could come to the obvious conclusion she knew what she was supposed to be doing, and she applied the factors and weighed them. Well, and, and I come back to the fact that, and it's docket number 233 at the court below, the brief submitted by the Melendrez, Melendrez plaintiffs that laid out the Bancorp test and factors. And also, footnote three, where she's talking about the preclusive effect of the court's rulings, that's exactly what the Dilley court said she was supposed to be considering. She was considering it even though neither of the parties raised the, raised the issue directly. And I would also note, Your Honor, that her operative language, the district court's operative language here on page, on line seven of the fourth page is the, the court declines to order any further relief. That's a, that, that represents an exercise of, of discretion in terms of how the court framed its ruling. Do you agree that his appeal is moot? Uh, we do agree that this appeal is moot, Your Honor. Excuse me? Yes. And do you also agree that there are no collateral consequences from the, uh, from the finding of guilt? Uh, yes, Your Honor. I, we did not brief that in our brief because we thought within, the role, within my role as special prosecutor here, I was hesitant to go there. But the Department of Justice has very steer, clearly stated its position on that issue at pages 14 and 15 and footnote 2 of its brief. So at this point, I don't think there's any dispute about the fact that there are no collateral consequences. Uh, Mr. Arpaio himself agrees with that, uh, that, that the uh, case is moot. Uh, as he says at page 17 of his brief, appellant does not disagree with the United States or even with the, the special prosecutor that the court need not reach the merits of the underlying appeal because of mootness. That's in his reply brief. So all the parties here agree on, uh, agree that it's moot, and in that situation, as Your Honor has pointed out, I don't see, I don't see how Munsingware comes into play here. It doesn't come into play for a variety of reasons, including the fact this is not happenstance. This was a voluntary action in accepting the pardon, and there's also no adverse judgment uh, against Mr. Arpaio to be vacated uh, which would have the possible preclusive effects that, w- that are mo- motivating the Munsingware decision. So uh, this, is, this is the opposite of happenstance. Happenstance is when, is the, you know, there's a variety of, of situations in the cases when somebody gets moved coincidentally from one prison to another or when, when the party dies. Um, this is the opposite of happenstance because it's a situation where Mr. Arpaio chose to accept the pardon. Uh, he also, by the way, in the Melendres brief, uh, docket 233, there's also evidence in the record concerning the, the letter written by Mr. Arpaio's lawyer 
counsel in this case, Mr. Goldman, asking for the pardon to be issued and asking it to, confirming that Mr. Arpaio would accept it, which of course he did by filing it and with the district court three days after it was issued. And uh, in that letter, what Mr. Arpaio was urging the president to act quickly so that he would avoid the sentencing and avoid the possibility of a perp walk. And that's his, the language of Mr. Arpaio's attorney to uh, Donald McGahn, the president's counsel. Mr. Arpaio got what he wanted from the pardon. There's nothing inequitable or unfair about this result. He wasn't sentenced. He was relieved of any, any punishment. Um, but relieving a party of punishment, as, as, is, as this court said in the Buenostro case last year, when a court, a, a pardon does not do away with the finding of guilt, it relieves the party, uh, the pardon party of punishment. And, uh, and that is exactly what happened here. The district court properly exercised its discretion in, in refusing to grant the extraordinary equitable remedy of vacator. Uh, Your Honor, if, you, if you'd like, I could address the Burdick versus Biddle issue, but I think it's quite clear, and, and as the Department of Justice has uh, also agrees, Biddle was not overruled by Burdick. Biddle was a situation involving a commutation of a death penalty. Uh, and as Biddle says, a, a defendant can't force a, the state to hang him. Um, and Biddle was very careful not to extend the reasoning of Burdick and basically went out of its way not to overrule Burdick. Um, the, as I understand Mr. Arpaio's argument, um, and to a large extent the Department of Justice argument, they are relying heavily, if not very heavily, on the Schaefer case. But as, this, as has already been mentioned, Schaefer is distinguishable in two very important respects. First, uh, Schaefer involved a situation where the D.C. Circuit was making its, de- making its own determination in the first instance of whether to vacate orders in a case. It was not an abuse of discretion review. Um, it's also clear that Schaefer expressly refers to the equitable analysis in U.S. Bancorp. The language, the operative language in the per curiam decision is that vacator here is just and appropriate, see U.S. Bancorp. So it's not an automatic rule by any means. And I would also note that the, the decision of the D.C. Circuit in Schaefer, frankly, represents a departure from the procedure that's been mandated by this circuit, that when it, whether the determination of whether a district court order should be vacated is best made by the district court itself, and if necessary, a remand. That's, of course, what occurred in uh, U.S. v. Tapia Marquez and is the procedure that was outlined by this court in Ringsby, Dilley, and most recently, the American Games case, where, as, as, uh, as Judge Smith, as you pointed out, the job on remand was for the district court to consider in light of the attendant consequences and attendant hardships of dismissal or refusal to dismiss and the competing values of finality of judgment and right to relitigation. And here the would... Let me interrupt you. Supposing I don't think she uh, applied the right standard of review here. Is this harmless error? Um... It's, it's harmless error in the record. It read, think about what harmless error is? No, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think, think about how harmless error applies in this situation, Your Honor. I'm not sure. I, I don't I think mean, it's... I, 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 I've been thinking through this, so I want to make sure that you understand the confines of harmless error. Uh, certainly as a threshold matter, I'm not, I'm not agreeing I it's error. You probably haven't thought about it. Um, so I'm just trying to make sure you... I, I would, I would, Your Honor, I think I would approach the uh, issue from the perspective of this court can affirm on the basis of what is in the record, um, and 
it is the record shows both that the equitable balancing test and factors were presented to the district court for consideration the department of justice expressly said in the oral argument that the court had discretion a variety of options well within the court's discretion in ruling on the motion and while admittedly it's it's kind of in passing in footnotes because the issue hadn't been presented squarely by the actual parties to the case the court did the district court did consider the issues that it had been directed to consider by the by the dilly decision if it didn't lay them out in greater detail that is i don't think that's error that means that the judgment would need to be reversed certainly wouldn't mean that the judgment needs to be reversed i have a question about the schaefer case one thing that's unusual about schaefer is that it recites the munsingware rule and says this court generally vacates the district court's judgment vacates any outstanding panel decisions and remands to the district court with directions to dismiss but then when it finally gets to the bottom line answer it says we hereby vacate all opinions judgments and verdicts of this court and the district court so it didn't just stop at the judgment it wiped out the interlocutory orders that preceded it how do you distinguish that part of the case your honor i have to say i i had i it puzzled me in the same way but i think that decision can be understood and makes sense in terms of the dc circuit's exercise of discretion under u.s bank corp because of the difference between this case and that the arpaio case and the schaefer case in terms of whether there was an extant criminal conviction at the time that the that the pardon was received and at the time that the vacator issue was considered in schaefer there what the the bribery count had been had judgment had been entered in the defendant's favor after there was a motion for judgment on acquittal that was affirmed on appeal and with respect to the meat inspection count which was the second count at the time that the issue was considered by the court the motion the district court's motion for retrial for new trial had been reinstated so there was no extant criminal conviction at that time in this case there was not only an extant criminal conviction but there was a confession of guilt associated that accompanied the acceptance of the pardon and so in looking at how you would expect a court to exercise its discretion you would certainly expect a different it makes sense that the court would wipe this be more inclined to wipe the slate clean if the issue was presented at a time that there's no conviction and no confession of guilt so that that's 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 my my best ability to understand because obviously the schaefer is a per curiam decision it doesn't contain any any analysis of why of why it decided to wipe the entire slate clean and if for entry of a judgment of dismissal with prejudice i'm sorry did schaefer remand the case for entry of a judgment of dismissal with prejudice your honor i'd have to look at the decision whether it was remanded for entry or whether uh whether the district court i think they directed the district court to do that dismiss the case as moot as moot is that a dismissal with prejudice or is that something else and maybe that accounts for why the orders got wiped out that could also account for it your honor because a dismissal a remand for dismissal as moot may or may not be a dismissal with prejudice there's there based on that language there was not direction that the case should be dismissed with prejudice whereas in this case what mr arpaio sought and was granted by the district court was a dismissal with prejudice i would also say your honors that the in in looking at the equitable factors which may not have been discussed by the district court in its order but were certainly part of the record in the district court um this was a this is a markedly different case from schaefer and frankly a different case from any other case that the parties have identified because when you look at the other u.s bank court factors of the interest of the public and the interest of the courts all of those factors here counsel in favor of of affirming the district court's order unlike schaefer the underlying crime here was contempt of court 
schaefer certainly did not involve a situation where the defendant had publicly and brazenly announced his intention to violate a court order those are both factors where the interests of the court were implicated and in the end from the perspective of the public interest unlike our pio the defendant in schaefer was a private citizen not a public official and the public interest in terms of the victims of Mr. Arpaio's contemptuous conduct were known to the court and were presented to the court in the brief that they filed opposing vacator. This case really stands alone um, in that we believe Judge Bolton's order properly preserves the power of the executive branch to pardon a criminal defendant while avoiding punishment for the conduct. And my final point would be There has not been a single case cited by any party to this appeal where a district court's order denying vacatur of a criminal conviction has been reversed. The egregious facts of Mr. Arpaio's contemptuous conduct, which are outlined very succinctly in the DOJ's brief, do not make this an appropriate case for the first decision by a federal appellate court holding that a district court abused its discretion in refusing to vacate a criminal conviction. Thank you. Mr. Willinchak. Thank you, Mr. Caldwell, and uh, thank you for your um, acceptance of the appointment by the court. Well, you heard your uh, opposing counsel. Everyone agrees that there are no collateral consequences and that you have a judgment in your favor of dismissal with prejudice. How is it then that what you're seeking doesn't amount just to expungement. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, and that's the first point I was going to take up, because the fact is, if, if the court finds that, as exactly what I think you're saying, that if the dismissal of prejudice has no, if as a result of the dismissal, dismissal of prejudice, the conviction has no preclusive effect, that really is what we're seeking. And if, if the court finds as a matter of law, that's what the dismissal of prejudice accomplished, Honestly, in our minds, that's equivalent to a vacatur. That is all we are seeking here. Um, there may be some, some distinction there, which, you know, I, I think this is a dialogue here. I understand what the court, the court is, is thinking, the direction it's thinking in. There may be a distinction here in terms of uh, cases in which a vacatur of the judgment is sought and a vacatur of orders prior to the judgment, or in this case, effectively the judgment, is sought. Um, so I think we're really not talking across purposes there. Again, if the court were to find that the dismissal of prejudice already accomplished um, it, if as a result of the dismissal with prejudice, the conviction already has no preclusive effect, that really is functionally equivalent to what we're seeking here. The, the problem we've had is that the district court did not find that. Um, as, as far as we can tell on the record we have, this is a conviction that is final, will be there forever, and we are forever unable to appeal, and that is the basic problem here. If the court finds that on, this, on the state of the record that we have, that's not the case, that really does solve the relief sought here. And again, that's why I say this really is a matter of judicial housekeeping, being clear as to whether that conviction is final, unappealable, appealable, or what the status of that is. Uh, I see I've got three seconds left, so I'll, I'll conclude with that. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Willinchuk. We thank, thank, uh, thank all counsel for, for the argument. The case of United States versus Arpaio is submitted. That completes the oral argument calendar for the day. The court stands adjourned for the day. All right.